is Katie Heinley, and this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make it fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod. If you have a generous sort, you can be like Jody, Jerry, John, Garrett, Ben, and Janet and support the podcast on Patreon with either recurring or one-time donations. This helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. Today, I'm interviewing Michelle Briggs. Michelle received her Bachelor's of Science from the University of Southern California and her Master's from Montana State University. She is currently a PhD student in the Montana Cooperative Fisheries Research Unit, working with Dr. Chris Guy. Her research focuses on the population dynamics and the genetic structure of Yellowstone cutthroat trout in Yellowstone Lake. Michelle has worked fisheries positions in Washington, Alaska, and Wyoming, and is broadly interested in native fish conservation. All right, welcome to the podcast, Michelle. Thanks. I always like starting with people's backgrounds. So where did your interest in fisheries first begin? Um, I guess I first became interested in nature and the outdoors as a kid. I grew up in the Seattle area in Western Washington and spent a lot of time tide pooling and going hiking growing up. And I learned how to scuba dive when I was in middle school and went scuba diving with my dad and was just always really interested in um, marine and aquatic ecosystems. But I didn't become specifically interested in fisheries as a career path until I was in my undergraduate. And I started out pre-med during undergrad and then kind of realized that maybe wasn't for me. So I became interested in trying uh, really anything ecology related and ended up getting an internship working in Western Washington on the Awa River during the dam removals that happened there. And that really kind of got me hooked on fisheries. It was pretty hard not to, you know, know that that was the career for me after starting with that really amazing project. That's so cool. That's such a cool project. <laughs> It was really close and a really amazing like first field job to have. I'm extremely lucky to have gotten to be there during that time. Was that right after the dam came out or right before? It was actually during the dam removals. Um, Yeah, so they had removed the first dam by the time I got there and started working there. And then the, the two summers I was there. I think they were removing the second and larger dam. So um, it was really cool to see the ecosystem change like during the course of the two seasons I was there. And yeah, just like a lot of really, um, you know, a lot of focus on the area, a lot of excitement about that project while I was there and um, got to work with juvenile salmon, which was really fun. That's awesome. Okay, that leads in all to my next question, which was just if you could give a quick overview of your career path since your time at USC and then maybe since the, your job with the LWAP family level. Yeah, um, so I did my two summers working at the LWA during undergrad and you know, I was just really excited about fisheries work. And so after I graduated, I got a job um, in Alaska in Talkeetna, which is a really small town about halfway between Anchorage and Denali National Park. And my job there was with a very small nonprofit called the Aquatic, um, oh my gosh, it's Aquatic Restoration and Research Institute. (laughs) Um, 
And I worked on looking at the effects of logging on salmon habitat in um, Alaska. And that was really amazing summer. Got a lot of experience in the field doing you know, fish specific work, but also looking at other environmental variables like stream habitat and paraphyton and sediment and things like that. Um, so that was really fun. And then my next seasonal job the following year, I started as an SCA intern in Yellowstone National Park with the Native Fish Conservation Program there. And I never really left Yellowstone after that. <laughs> um, so I spent two summers doing seasonal work in Yellowstone with the SCA, the Park Service, and the Montana Fishery Cooperative Research Unit. And then I started grad school um, at Montana State after that, um, also working in Yellowstone. Just sucks you right in. <laughs> it sure does. <laughs> it's hard to leave. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's beautiful. I said I understand it. It is very beautiful. <laughs> it's a great place to work. You've worked in a lot of really cool places. And so I was curious if you had a favorite job or project of those that you've worked on. Oh, man, that's so hard to pick because um, they've all been really, um, really fun and really exciting. I definitely really love my current PhD project, but that's also um, you know, it's the one that I'm really most involved in. So it's like, um, you know, really in depth in that project. Um, and I also have worked in Yellowstone for a long time. So that is a place that's just like really important and really special to me. But I also did really love working on the Awa River. Um, it's, it was really incredible to see that ecosystem like being restored just like in real time. It was pretty amazing watching salmon come back upstream to spawn and seeing the estuary um, and like whole intertidal area just become really revitalized. Um, so that was also a really an amazing place to work. And um, having grown up in Western Washington was also um, it was just really beautiful there, really. Um, so I enjoyed that as well. Yeah. So now I'm excited. I'm going to say it anyways, and it's just going to be funny to me. I'm excited to dive into your <laughs> master's research. And part of why I find that funny is because you got to do some scientific diving for it, which I think is so cool. Can you talk about the focus of that project and then maybe some of the methods? Because I think that's pretty fun. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so the project was in Yellowstone Lake in Yellowstone National Park, um, where there is a population of invasive lake trout that have been really detrimental to the native Yellowstone cutthroat trout. Um, and the Park Service has been suppressing invasive lake trout for um, over 25 years now. And in addition to gill netting, which is the main way that lake trout are removed from Yellowstone Lake, they've also been experimenting with some alternative suppression methods. And um, one of those that they've done quite a bit of research on has been suppressing lake trout embryos via a, a variety of, of ways. And one method that they found was pretty successful for killing lake trout embryos was taking the lake trout carcasses from gill netting and placing those onto lake trout spawning sites to smother the lake trout embryos. So as those carcasses decompose, it would cause a reduction in dissolved oxygen and essentially smother the lake trout embryos, um, killing them before they could hatch. 
Uh, so it's a pretty cool idea. Um, I actually worked as a technician for a graduate student who did some of the first um, you know, tests of that. And you also like that was Nate Thomas. Um, so that was a fun technician position to have and got to keep working on that as a master's student. Um, so my research specifically was to try to look at whether using carcasses on the spine sites might be having any non-target effects on the ecosystem. Um, so the lake trout carcasses usually get placed in or dumped into really deep areas of Yellowstone Lake where we think they're, you know, having a lower, you know, influence on the ecosystem. But when you're putting them on lake trout spawning sites, those are pretty shallow areas, generally less than 20 meters. And so they decompose a little bit more quickly. And um, there's a lot you know, there's more organisms in that area that they could, you know, these big piles of decomposing fish could be affecting. So uh, my project was focused on determining whether using carcasses for lake trout embryo suppression had an effect on the invertebrate populations um, at those sites, specifically amphipods, because they are the dominant benthic invertebrate in Yellowstone Lake. There's a lot of them. They get pretty big there, well, for that system. And they're a favorite food of Yellowstone cutthroat trout and also consumed by lake trout. So they're really important for the food web as well. So that was a fun project to work on. And I conducted almost all of my sampling by diving, as you mentioned. It's surprisingly difficult to collect invertebrate samples from rocky substrate in lakes. Um, you think that there would be a better way to do this by now, but we couldn't find one. <laughs> so um, we would dive on the spawning sites that were uh, being treated with lake trout carcasses as well as some control sites and collect invertebrate samples throughout the season. We used a suction sampler, which um, the USGS dive safety officer that I worked with was kind enough to lend me. It's not a very high tech device. It was essentially a bilge pump that was attached to a plastic cutting board but we used it to just like vacuum the invertebrates off of the lake. Um, and it was really effective. It worked really well. It's portable, small enough. You could like hold it and, you know, carry it around while you're underwater. Um, so yeah, I spent a lot of time in the lake for my master's research. I think I logged just over a hundred dives for that project um, over two years. What was the timeline like for you? sampling the invertebrates, was it right after they dumped the carcasses or was there like a period of like a lag time that you waited to see? We sampled throughout the entire like ice-free season in Yellowstone Lake. They dumped the carcasses in the fall because that's when lake trout spawn. So we'd start to do like a um, backy design. We started at both our control and treatment sites in June um, as soon as we could get um, onto the lake and start sampling. And we sample monthly until they started dumping carcasses, and then we started sampling every two weeks. Okay. And so that continued for two months until we had to stop because the park shuts down. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Very cool. What did you end up finding for that? We found pretty limited effects of the carcass treatment on invertebrates. Um, we didn't detect any effects on amphipods, which again are like the most abundant invertebrate, uh, I believe, in, in by density and also by biomass in Yellowstone Lake. Um, we found some kind of limited negative effects on the abundance and biomass of 
taxa that are more sensitive generally to environmental conditions, so um, Ephemeraptera and Trichoptera seem to decline a little bit, but these effects are very likely extremely localized and probably also short-lived. The carcass material disperses within generally about like eight to 12 weeks. And there's, you know, hardly any left the following spring. So overall, we are not concerned about causing like huge lake-wide changes to invertebrate communities or the food web from doing carcass treatments at these relatively localized spawning sites. Awesome. It's really exciting to know that your suppression methods aren't having a bunch of adverse effects. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, you know, cool to work on a project like that. Where it's like, okay, you know, they're being very, like we're being very thorough about making sure that we're not causing unintended consequences, which you know, is not always done in invasive species suppression. You know, I think there's a lot of examples of like biological control mm-hmm. methods that have gone very poorly. So yeah, it's always great to see that kind of research happening. Yeah, for sure. I was, um, trying to go back and listen to Drew did an episode of the fisheries podcast that mm-hmm. people can go back and listen to and talk a bit more about the history of lake trout suppression. So I have two questions, one that will go into your PhD eventually. But the first one is he talks about using the pellets as well. Did you just focus on lake trout carcasses themselves or did you also look at the effects of pellets in your study? I just focused on carcasses. Um, there are a couple of reasons for that. Um, we had intended to do a little bit of preliminary work on pellets as well, though that wasn't like the main focus of my project, but there was only one pellet treatment that happened like during the time I was doing field work, um, and it happened a little bit later in the season. So we only had about, I think, like two weeks to sample after the pellets were placed before field work had to be done for the year. Um, we had some uh, boat issues and weather issues that really prevented us from getting samples after the pellets went in. So one of the other graduate students I worked with, um, Dominique Lujan, who got her master's degree at the University of Wyoming, did look at the effects of pellets on nutrient cycling and paraphyton. And there is some more work going on um, on that right now. So didn't get a comprehensive understanding of how it affects invertebrates, unfortunately, um, but there's you know some continued work on that right now, so. Cool. And then my second question in relation is, I don't, I guess people have to go back and fact check me if this is wrong, but I don't think Drew covered the history of Yellowstone cutthroat as much as he did the history of like lake trout suppression in that episode. So before mm-hmm. we jump into your PhD, can you talk a bit about the the history of Yellowstone Cutthroat and Yellowstone Lake and the recovery that's been going on? Yeah, it's a, a really amazing population of Yellowstone Cutthroat trout. It's the largest remaining um, non-hybridized population of Yellowstone Cutthroat trout, and I believe the largest inland population of cutthroat trout in North America. So just really important ecologically, also very important culturally. And cutthroat trout have you know, been through a lot in Yellowstone Lake. Um, there's been a lot of different management practices over the years. The, we don't know a lot about them you know, going way back, but we do know that in the um, like 1950s and 1960s, there was egg-taking operations for a hatchery that was at Yellowstone Lake. 
Um, and there was also a lot of angling pressure um, on the population. So they were pretty reduced in abundance at that time. In the 70s, the Park Service stopped, or I guess it was earlier than that, but by the 70s, they'd stopped the hatchery operation and also increased the like, strictness of the fishing regulations. And the population rebounded like pretty dramatically. In the 1970s and 80s, there were a lot of cutthroat trout in Yellowstone Lake. There's one spawning stream called Clear Creek that's on the east shore of Yellowstone Lake that was recorded as having over 70,000 individuals running up to spawn annually. So pretty huge population. And then lake trout were introduced sometime in the 1980s, and there was a very dramatic decline in cutthroat trout abundance in Yellowstone Lake. Um, we don't know exactly how low the population got, but the spawning run in Clear Creek was reduced to, like, I think just maybe a hundred or you know, definitely less than a thousand individuals. That's a pretty dramatic decrease from 70,000. And um, that I think the low point of cutthroat trout abundance in the lake was in 2010. The Park Service started lake trout suppression in 1996 and then really ramped up their efforts in 2010 and 2011 when they brought on the contract gill netting crews. And since then, cutthroat trout have really started to recover in Yellowstone Lake, um, which is very exciting. I, I really enjoy hearing about Yellowstone Lake and Yellowstone cutthroat because it's nice to have a more positive frame around a fish that I really care about. And I'm really excited to see where your PhD goes because it's all looking at the population dynamics and recovery of this population. So given that, could you talk a bit more about what you're focusing on specifically for your dissertation? Yeah, the, my project, sort of the impetus for it is that Yellowstone cutthroat trout are recovering. We pretty much know how to kill lake trout now, pretty good at it. There's been a lot of research on lake trout over the last 25 years. And now that we're really starting to see this like pretty strong positive response from cutthroat trout, it's like, oh, we need to study this population that we're actually trying to conserve. And there's just so much that we don't know right now, um, especially given like, what is the cutthroat trout population like now, given you know the changes in climate that we've had over the last 40 years and you know, that they're coexisting with lake trout right now and will be indefinitely. And so my dissertation is going to you know, try to address some of these knowledge gaps related to like the current status of the population and also will hopefully guide future management of cutthroat trout in Yellowstone Lake and as well as um, help the Park Service develop um, some updated conservation benchmarks um, for cutthroat trout in Yellowstone Lake that are based on more current population metrics. Um, the current benchmarks are kind of based on the pre-lake trout population, which is probably not you know, providing realistic targets anymore. So some of the main focuses of my PhD, um, a big one is studying the population dynamics of cutthroat trout in Yellowstone Lake. So we're doing a park recapture study, which is ongoing. Um, we started that two years ago to estimate abundance and survival of cutthroat trout in the lake. Um, so we've been tagging fish that are caught in these um, large live entrapment nets that the um, contract suppression netting crews help us operate, or I guess operate for us. 
they help us catch all of our fish, which has been really awesome. And we are also looking at reproductive ecology of cutthroat trout. Um, so we're trying to estimate fecundity, age at first maturity, and spawning periodicity. So we're trying to determine if these fish ever like skip spawning or if they spawn every year. Um, and all of these components will be put into a population model um, to help us estimate current demographic rates for the population. Um, so we just don't really have any recent estimates for demographic rates or abundance. Um, so these are pretty important things to know for future management. So we will then hopefully use that population model to then like project the population under some different management scenarios, like different levels of lake trout suppression netting um, to get an idea of what the population might be like in the future, as well as to um, like select the best management scenarios going forward. So that's kind of like the population dynamics portion. And then I'm also doing a genetics portion of my research, cutthroat trout in Yellowstone Lake spawn in streams and we know that they return to the same spawning stream year after year and we think they also home to their natal spawning stream so we hypothesize that there's probably genetically distinct subpopulations within Yellowstone Lake and that's something that people have talked about for a long time but it's never really been looked into seriously and especially not with like all of these really amazing modern genetic analysis tools that we have now. So we have been collecting genetic samples, both from Yellowstone Lake, um, that population, as well as genetic samples that are specific to different spotting locations. So we're trying to determine whether there are genetically distinct subpopulations within the lake, whether individual spotting runs are genetically distinct from one another. And if they are, can we figure out which spotting runs are making the largest contribution to the lake-wide population? Those are probably the highlights of my yeah. PhD research. I'm just going to make a quick comment of that it's not doing a good job of underscoring the massive undertaking that is your PhD. <laughs> <laughs> like the thousands of fish that you've marked for this marketing project and like all of the different areas you're sampling genetics from like it is truly impressive and i'm like really excited to see where your project like how it ends Thank up but <laughs> just so it... i think all phds are pretty massive undertaking yes. um, but mine has been uh, it's been a lot of field work over the last two years really lucky to work in yellowstone with like a very large team of biologists and technicians. Um, it is way too much work for one PhD student to do with a technician by themselves. So I've had help from all of the Park Service biologists in Yellowstone over the last two years to get a huge amount of sampling done. Yeah, we tagged over 8,000 fish, collected genetic samples from I think like over 40 locations. So yeah been an undertaking for sure for sure <laughs> <laughs> i don't think i would do as well in your position but i'm so excited that you are there <laughs> i think that you're selling yourself katie <laughs> well just the like amount of field like field work and time and like logistics like i just find it very impressive like wow i would struggle with that considering all this stuff so well, I also have a lot of support for my project from, you know, 
Todd and from Chris and from all the biologists. So there's like a pretty big framework of like work that's already being done on Yellowstone Lake mm-hmm. um, that I can kind of like fit right into and, and get help when I need it, which makes a really big difference. Yeah. Okay. So outside of this saying that it's a lot of work and I'm really impressed, can you also talk about the work that you've done collecting genetics up in like the thoroughfare in the part of the Yellowstone that drains into Yellowstone Lake? Because I just think that's a really cool aspect of your project. Yeah, this was probably one of like the most exciting parts in terms of like the field work that I got to do um, for my project. Um, so the upper Yellowstone River is like this huge watershed that uh, Yellowstone River drains into Yellowstone Lake. And the watershed is almost entirely um, either within the National Park or within uh, the Bridger Teton Wilderness. It's really remote. It's like the most furthest you can be from a road in the lower 48. Um, so it's pretty hard to get back there. But it's this huge area that provides so much spawning habitat for cutthroat trout from Yellowstone Lake. They migrate pretty far from the lake. I think they've been documented as far as 40 kilometers upstream of Yellowstone Lake spawning. So we were able to take two backcountry trips into this area this past summer to get genetic samples. Our first one in June, we actually targeted spawning adults and we collected them via angling, which was really fun. <laughs> so yeah, we were able to like, you know, see these really large, beautiful spawning adult cutthroat trout, catch them on fly rods and take thin clips, which was um, amazing. We also were lucky enough to be on a, a supported pack trip for this. So we rode horses into the backcountry and um, yeah, it was a very exciting trip that kind of felt like unreal for a grad student to get to do. (laughs) And then we took a second trip in September. This one seemed a little bit more normal for grad school level field work. Um, That was a backpacking trip. Um, We didn't have to go quite as far um, for this one. So that was about um, 10 10 to 12 mile hike um, into the back country. And we targeted a juvenile cutthroat trout in um, part of the watershed that we didn't get to on our June trip, um, just used backpack electric fishing to collect um, those juvenile fish for genetic samples. But it's a very beautiful area back there. Um, and I feel really lucky to have gotten uh, to do research there. Yeah, for sure. Cool. So one question I really like to ask graduate students is what hobbies and interests do you have outside of fisheries science or just work? <laughs> I know it's easy to get a little consumed by work, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, I'm lucky enough to live in Bozeman. um, So I feel like I have the whole suite of like normal Montana outdoor activity hobbies. Um, I especially like trail running and backpacking um, in the summer and cross country skiing in the winter. But I also like fly fishing. Hopefully that's not like too related to (laughs) fisheries and uh, hunting. So I spend a lot of time outdoors, um, as you do when you live in Montana. But I also have some more indoor hobbies, I guess. I like to cook, and I also like to knit uh, and read. And I enjoy spending time with my dogs. Okay, two quick follow-up ones. First, do you have, like, a favorite book or a favorite genre of book that you like to read? um, I mostly read fiction and I think that's just because you know it's like I want something that's like a little bit easier and a little bit lighter at the end of the day after being at work 
Um, I, I guess I have some authors I really like. I really like Barbara Kingsolver. Um, she's one of my favorites. Yeah, I listen to a lot of audiobooks too. Just you know, it's great when you're like driving to and from Yellowstone like many mm-hmm. times during the summer. For sure. <laughs> and then my second <laughs> follow-up question is: I noticed on your CV for your undergrad, you have a minor in flute. Is that is oh, that right? Yeah. Can you play the flute? Uh-huh. Is that still part of your life? <laughs> I do. Um, I don't as much anymore, but I did play a lot in high school, and then I did get a minor in flute performance in college. Yeah, I found it a little bit hard to keep up with in grad school, especially I, definitely after I graduated from college when I was like moving around a lot. And then, um, yeah, I just haven't fit it into my life very well in grad school, but maybe I'll pick it up again yeah. someday. I just thought that was so fun. I was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> that's not something you see. Okay, awesome. Well, Michelle, what we call the test part of the interview is over, and we're down to the final five questions, which is a group of questions we ask each of the guests to come on the show. The first one is, what is your favorite fish? So my favorite fish is probably whatever fish I happen to be, like, looking at in the moment, generally, (laughs) because I love them all, Mm -hmm. Um, or whatever fish I'm, like, working with or holding. Um, You know, it's hard to pick a favorite, but if I have to pick one, I'd probably pick coho salmon just because one, salmon are amazing. And they were like the first fish species that I worked with in my career. Um, and I worked with juvenile coho salmon, which are very cute. And yeah, growing up in Washington, they're just like a really big part of the ecosystem and the culture. Um, so they're, they're a top contender for favorite fish. Awesome. All right. What's your favorite memory from your career so far? Uh, I, we just talked about working in the Faro Fair and um, probably getting to sample in the Faro Fair on our course trip this past summer. It was, it was one of my favorites for sure. It was a pretty amazing experience and also really fun um, to be back there with a really good group of people. And yeah, just getting to like be in such a remote place and you know seeing fish that i'm like oh that fish came from yellowstone like we're so far from there right now (laughs) um it's really exciting that is so cool all right what's your dream job and their location probably my dream job um i guess i i want to do like research that can inform the conservation and management of native fish species um I think probably my dream job would be like a research biologist with USGS or another federal agency. Um, and I'd really like to stay in the Western US, um, ideally like Montana, if that works out, but we'll see how things go <laughs> when I graduate. All right, if money was not an issue, what is one project you would like to work on? Um, I think working on like large scale restoration projects is really exciting. I've been like really lucky to work on you know, some pretty big projects, but um, it would be amazing to work on like other dam removals, like maybe the Snake River dam removals, if that ever happens, would be um, very exciting. Just watching those like big changes in habitat and, and in fish populations. But I think that maybe is more of like a political will issue than a money issue, which is probably even more difficult. Yeah, for sure. Okay. 
Our last question is if there's one point or principle you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? I think like just take time to enjoy life, get outside as much as you can. And I think just remember why you got into your work in the first place when you, you know, just need a little reminder about why you're slamming your head against the keyboard looking at our code. <laughs> Absolutely. Which happens to me often. <laughs> oh, beautiful. See, I knew you'd have a great answer for that one. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, I'm so stressed. Oh, no. <laughs> Okay, well, Michelle, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Um, always fun to talk about your work and learn more about you. If people want to find out more information about you or get in touch with you about your project, how should they do that? Email is probably the best way. Um, yeah. Okay, great. I will link that in our show notes. I hope that you all enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to get on the podcast, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod or send us an email to feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Katie Heinley. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, take time to enjoy life and remember why you started your work in the first place. Thank you.